You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, Merry Christmas. Andy Williams once sang that this is the most wonderful time of the year. And indeed, there are many reasons to rejoice at Christmas time. I hope that you've gotten some time off of work or school. I certainly hope you've gotten to spend some fun time with family and friends. Maybe you've gotten some presents. Maybe some of you have to wait for the end of this service to get some presents. Uh, if you're like me, you're probably looking forward to some good bowl games at the end of the week. Christmas time offers many good things to enjoy, many reasons to be glad. But this morning, I want to talk with you about the most important reason that we should rejoice this Christmas, and that is because of the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And today, I want to tell you why the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago is so important. And understand that when I say it's important, I'm not simply saying that the birth of Jesus is a historically significant event, although it is. But friends, today I want you to know the birth of Jesus is personally significant for every one of us. And today I want you to know why that is. And today I want you to know why some event that happened millennia ago can give us such a real and wonderful reason to rejoice today. And so today we're going to learn about the importance of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to do that by looking at a portion of the Bible that we don't often associate with Christmas. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Again, you can find that on page 777 of the Black Pew Bible, or it's printed in the inside of your bulletin this morning. And as we consider this passage today, we're going to focus on a term that many people use but which many people don't understand. And that term is Christ. And as we better understand this term Christ and its significance, we will learn more about the meaning and significance of Christmas. Today we're going to say three things about the term Christ. First, we're going to see that the Christ is the son of David. Second, we're going to see that the Christ is the son of God. And third, we're going to see that the Christ is Jesus and what Jesus requires of us. Well, let's start with our first point, which is that the Christ is the son of David. As we come to Matthew 22 this morning, the adult Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's just a few days before his death. And we find Jesus in the temple, that center of the Jewish religion. And he's there to teach, probably in the outer courtyard. And as Jesus is teaching, suddenly he's interrupted. Matthew 21 tells us that Jesus' teaching was interrupted by some Jewish religious leaders who wanted to challenge him, hoping to publicly discredit him. Now, this is nothing new. Throughout Jesus' entire ministry, he has been constantly opposed by various religious leaders within Judaism. But what is different this time is that now, after all of this antagonism, finally this conflict is coming to its climax. Because on this one day, at this one time, here in the temple, the very highest ranking figures within the Jewish religious establishment 
draw Jesus into an ultimate showdown, the final great debate. And over the last several weeks, as we've looked at Matthew 21 and Matthew 22, we have seen how this debate unfolded. As the most prestigious elites in first century Judaism challenged Jesus, asking him tricky question after tricky question about all kinds of issues, ranging from politics to theology. But after four rounds of intense back and forth, one thing is clear. Despite all of the great learning and the great cleverness and the great rhetoric of all of these religious leaders, in the end, Jesus stands triumphant. All of the challengers who have taken him on are silenced because no one can outmaneuver Jesus. No one knows the Bible better than Jesus. No one can outsmart Jesus. No one can outdebate Jesus. Jesus has won the day. And so after the fourth round of the debate, which we looked at last week, nobody's left to challenge Jesus. But that doesn't mean the debate is over. Because now Jesus chooses to keep it going. Now Jesus goes on the offensive and he brings his own challenge to those leaders that he has just silenced. Look at verse 41 of our passage. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. For hours, all these folks have been putting questions to Jesus. Now Jesus has a question to put to them. And he decides to put it to the Pharisees, the group that has been the most consistently opposed to him throughout his ministry. Now, back in verse 34, we read that the Pharisees had gathered together. They had gotten together and cooked up a scheme that they thought would beat Jesus, a scheme that has just failed. And now here in verse 41, we see they are still gathered together. They're waiting to hear some news. How did their scheme go? They're hoping that this time they finally got him. They finally beat Jesus. But instead of getting that news, they get an unwelcome surprise. Not only have they failed to defeat Jesus, but now Jesus triumphantly walks towards them and he calls them out. He wants to take them on directly. See, in this debate before, when the Pharisees challenged Jesus, they sent some underlings to do it. Now Jesus comes at them and he takes them all on at once and he puts his question to them. And here it is. Look at verse 42. He says, what do you think about the Christ? See, throughout this debate, every time Jesus has been challenged, when they've come to him with their clever, tricky questions, Jesus has answered them in an honest and straightforward way. That's how he has avoided their traps. He's just been very direct with them. And as Jesus now continues this debate, once more, he is very honest and straightforward. See, up to this point, every question put to Jesus in this debate has been about some side issue some issue that really wasn't the issue that divided Jesus from these antagonists. But as Jesus continues now, he gives them a chance to argue with him about the real issue that stood between him and them. See, friends, the real antagonism that Jesus had and the religious leaders had was all about the fact that Jesus has proven again and again in his ministry that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. That's what this word Christ means the long-prophesied king of Israel. Jesus has proven that he is that king. Jesus proved it in his, his ministry by his miracles. And Jesus performed the works that the Old Testament says the Messiah would perform. Isaiah 35, 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, 
and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Jesus had done that for people. He's healed them. More than that, Jesus has proven his Messiahship by his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew eleven thirteen, Jesus says, All the prophets and law prophesied. The whole Old Testament was filled with prophetic expectation awaiting the Messiah. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus is the one whose coming was foretold. And indeed, so many events of his life perfectly align with what the Old Testament said be true about the Messiah from his birth to his death. See, the core issue that divided the religious leaders. And so if the religious leaders wanted to debate Jesus, Jesus now honestly gives them a chance to take him on. Not by arguing about these side issues, but by arguing the real question. Jesus says, fine, let's talk about the Messiah. Let's talk about the Christ. How do you understand him? And to get the discussion started, Jesus begins by throwing them an easy softball question. Look at verse 42. He says, whose son is he? Jesus' question is about lineage, about ancestry. Today when we use the word son, we usually think in terms of one generation, a father to his son. But among the ancient Jews, this language was used to speak of, of other things as well, maybe more distant relationships, not, not just a father to his son, but an ancestor's relationship to a descendant far removed on the family tree by many generations. And that's what Jesus' question here is asking about. He's saying to the Pharisees, what famous figure does the Bible say that the Messiah will be descended from? And for the Pharisees, this is an easy question, as it would be for any student of the Old Testament. Look at verse 42. They said to him, the son of David. And for once, the Pharisees get it right. Because the Old Testament indeed prophesied that the Christ, the Messiah, would be a descendant of David. Now, who's David? Well, David was the greatest king in the history of ancient Israel. He reigned about a thousand years before Jesus was born. And generally, he ruled very well. Now, if you know David's story, maybe the first thing you think of are his sins. That's a very common way we think about David today. And certainly, David was a deeply flawed man in some ways. But the Bible tells us generally David was a very good king. He was such a good king, in fact, that when the Bible speaks about his descendants, who later took his throne, it invariably compares each of them to David, saying things like this about them. Well, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. Or he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. See, in the Bible, David is the gold standard for a king. David loved God. David wrote more than 70 psalms praising God. Acts 13 says that God testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. David was generally a very good king. He was a valiant warrior. He defeated Israel's enemies. He gave Israel peace and prosperity. And when David wanted to honor God by building him a house, a temple, God said to David, you don't bless me, I bless you. You won't build me a house, I'll build you a house. And so God gave David this promise in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne 
shall be established forever. David's dynasty was to be an everlasting dynasty. David's throne was to rule an everlasting kingdom. God swore that. But how could this promise be fulfilled? Logically, there are only two possibilities. You could have an unending succession of kings until the end of time, or you could have one king who someday would rule forever. And as time went by, God gave additional details that made clear that he wanted to fulfill this prophecy by sending one ultimate final king who would be descended from David. We see this in Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. A king descended from David will come. A king not like the kings of old, not like our politicians today, not corrupt, not playing favorites, not doing evil. No, a king who is righteous and just, who will treat everyone fairly, who will do what is right and crush evil. Likewise, Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Again, a king is coming, descended from David, who will give Israel peace and security, who will vanquish their enemies. And as Jesus talks with the Pharisees, and he says, tell me what you understand about the Christ, this is their answer. The Messiah is a king who is coming, who is descended from David. And on that point, they are correct. But we're about to see that understanding, while superficially correct, is deficient because it's partial. It only grasps some truth. And yet the Pharisees extrapolated much from their partial grasp of the truth because they reasoned, well, if the Messiah is David's son, then the Messiah will be like David. David was a good king, the Messiah will be a good king. David was a valiant warrior, the Messiah will be a valiant warrior. David defeated Israel's enemies, well, the Messiah is going to defeat Rome for us. David gave Israel peace and prosperity, the Messiah will give us some of that too. And this is where their partial understanding led them astray. Because while the Pharisees understood the Messiah was the son of David, they have missed the equally biblical truth that he is so much more than that. And that his reign and triumph is on a scale far greater than just winning some military victory over the Romans. And this now is where Jesus takes the conversation as we come to our second point. See, the Christ is not just the son of David. He's also the son of God. Jesus started his discussion with the Pharisees by giving them an easy biblical question. Now he gives them a very difficult biblical question. Look at verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him, the Messiah, Lord? 
saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus now asked the Pharisees to interpret a passage from the Old Testament, a passage that was commonly understood to be a prophecy about the Messiah. The passage Jesus quotes is Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 is entitled, A Psalm of David. This is one of the many psalms that King David wrote. And in this psalm, King David says some very interesting things, some very hard things that are tough to understand without study. In fact, Psalm 110 is the passage that the book of Hebrews says believers should consider as they leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. This is the tough stuff in the faith. But this morning, we don't need to wade into all the complexities of Psalm 110. Instead, we need to understand what Jesus is driving at here, and we can do that just by considering the psalm's first two verses. And here's how it starts. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, to us, this might sound confusing because the word Lord shows up twice in just a few words. In the original Hebrew, this is much clearer. The first word Lord here is the name Yahweh, the name of God. And so David says here, Yahweh speaks. And Yahweh speaks to another figure whom David calls my Lord. Our term means master. Who is David talking about? Who would David call his Lord or master? It's an interesting and a mysterious question, especially when we think about who David was. David was a king. Now, in our world today, there aren't many kings left, and those that exist are mostly symbolic. Today, only seven countries have absolute monarchs, kings who rule absolutely in their domain. But in ancient times, every king was an absolute monarch. Friends, David did as he pleased, often for good, sometimes for bad. And David ruled for life. He wasn't up for re-election every four years. He didn't have to worry about a Congress or a Supreme Court. He was the absolute lord of his domain. Now, who would someone with that kind of power have to call my Lord, my Master? Well, we get some insight in Psalm 110, verse 2, where this mysterious figure is identified as a ruler who holds a scepter and reigns in Zion, that is, Jerusalem. This figure that David calls my Lord is a king of Israel. Now, this king is not David himself. Otherwise, David could say, Yahweh says to me, David says, Yahweh is speaking to a different king of Israel, a future king. And based on God's promise that the Davidic dynasty would endure forever, this other king must be a descendant of David. So David's talking about one of his descendants, and David calls that descendant his Lord. Well, which descendant? Jesus seems to think it's the Messiah here, because he's talking about the Messiah, and he quotes this verse. The Pharisees share the same view because as Jesus quotes this verse, they don't say, hey, that's not about the Messiah. They're like, yeah, it's about the Messiah. In fact, all of the earliest interpretations we have of this passage are that hold that this is a messianic prophecy. And so David here calls his descendant, the Messiah, his Lord. That's what Psalm 110 says. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to the Messiah. Now, with all that in mind, Jesus asks his final question to the Pharisees. Look at verse 45. If then David calls him, the Messiah, Lord, how is he his son? There's a way of looking at the world that says, 
things used to be better than they are today. There were the good old days, and then everything fell apart. Older is better, newer is worse. That's a common way people view the world, and a lot of ancient cultures viewed the world the same way, including the ancient Jews. So who has more prestige, the older or the younger? The older, right? And families, too. Honor their fathers. Fathers don't honor their sons. Descendants honor their ancestors. Ancestors don't honor their descendants. But this leads to Jesus' question. In Psalm 110, David, that great king from the past, the head of the dynasty, calls his own descendant Lord and Master. How can great King David's descendant be greater than King David? If all that the Messiah is, is just one more king in the lineage, one more successor to the throne, maybe he could be almost as good as David. Maybe he could even be equal to David. But how could he ever be so much greater than David that David hails him as Lord? That's the question Jesus puts to the Pharisees. And it's a question they cannot answer. Look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. So what is the answer to Jesus' question? What is Jesus driving at here? Well, we see the answer as we return to Psalm 110, verse 1. God speaks to the Messiah. What does God say? Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh directs the Messiah to sit at his right hand. Friends, if you were around a king in ancient times, you wouldn't be sitting. You'd be flat on your face or you'd be standing up. The king sits, nobody else. But now Yahweh, the king of creation, says to the Messiah, sit down. And not sit down way over there. You sit here beside me at my right hand. In the Bible, the right hand of God speaks of God's use of his almighty power. And so what we have here is this idea that the Messiah sits in absolute glory as God's equal, wielding God's good power to fulfill all of God's good purposes. That's the idea. No other passage in the Old Testament speaks about any king like this. No, friends, the Messiah is different. The Messiah is unique. And this is why David calls the Messiah his Lord. Because David understands the Messiah is not just one more of his descendants. He's not just the last in a long succession of kings. No, there's something divine about the Messiah. And this is an idea we see in later Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 7, God says he will give the royal house of David a sign. And here it is. He says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, a name that means God with us. And that's not just a funny name. It's a commentary on who this child is. He is God with us. See this in other prophecies like Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, which says, You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Yes, a king is coming. He will be born in Bethlehem, David's hometown. But Micah adds that this king's true origins are from ancient days. 
It's a phrase we find twice in the Old Testament that speaks about what existed before creation. And what existed before creation? Nothing but God. He's human, but He's more than that. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, Messiah will be a king, all right. A descendant of David on David's throne. He will reign with justice and righteousness, but he will also be mighty God, everlasting Father. Just as he comes from eternity past, he will reign forevermore. Yes, the Messiah is a human king who is born, but he's more than that. He's not simply the son of David. He's also the son of God. And that's what we celebrate today. That God the Father sent God the Son into this world. That the eternal Son, who is truly God in His nature, just as the Father is, took on true humanity, a humanity as real as yours and mine. And who is this figure? Who is this Messiah, this Son of David, this Son of God? Well, that's our last point today. The Christ is Jesus. The scriptures tell us Jesus is descended from David. That's how Matthew 1 begins. It tells us all about Jesus' family tree. And the first verse of the book identifies Jesus for us as Jesus Christ, the son of David. And there in, in Jesus' family tree we find David and all of David's royal lineage. In fact, even the way Matthew structures the genealogy of Jesus is all about uh, the number 14. There's three groups of 14 generations Say, what's the significance of that? 14 is the numerical value of the name of David in Hebrew reckoning. Even the way Matthew presents Jesus' family tree is to show us David, David, David. All of the Davidic promises find their culmination in Christ. Matthew 2 verse 1 says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, just like Micah prophesied. Born in David's hometown. But Jesus is not just the son of David. Twice in this book we've seen the Father spoke from heaven. First at Jesus' baptism at the start of His ministry. And then at His transfiguration in the midst of His ministry. And on both of these occasions, when the Father spoke, this is what He said before many witnesses about Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Yes, Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus also is the Son of God. He fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. He performs the works the Messiah will perform. Jesus is the Christ. And what does that mean? What does that mean for us? You know, the Pharisees thought the coming of the Messiah would be a political event. Some military victories, some independence, some good times. But just as the Pharisees had a partial understanding of the identity of the Messiah, they only had a partial understanding of the Messiah's mission. Because, friends, Jesus is not another politician. He is not another military conqueror. He is far greater than all of that. Jesus came as a great deliverer. But in his first coming, he did not come 
to liberate Israel from political oppression. He has come to liberate humanity, not just one ethnic group. He has come to deliver people from every tribe and language and people and nation from an enemy that is far worse than Rome. He has come to deliver us from sin, from rebellion against God. It might seem odd for us to think about sin as an enemy. We might think of sin as something we do, that we disobey God or that we... We do what he forbids or that we fail to do what he commands. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, every one to his own way. But sin is more than that. And our first parents discovered that long ago when they plunged the creation into ruin with their rebellion. Sin is a dread power. Make no mistake, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Sin isn't just something we do. Sin is a force. It is a vile slave master that oppresses everyone born under its cruel dominion, driving us again and again into making terrible choices and ruinous decisions, endlessly rebelling against God, heaping up more and more of God's condemnation. Listen to Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Friends, this is the pitiable state we each are born into, separated from God, spiritually dead, slaves of our flesh, always wanting what looks good and what feels good and what makes us feel important, slaves to the world system and the lies of our culture, slaves of Satan, endlessly mounting up the endless fury of God to be poured out on us at the end. This is a far worse oppression than anything Rome did to Israel. And this is what Jesus came to this world to defeat. The angel said to Joseph that day that he told her that the Virgin Mary was going to have a child. He said, Matthew 121, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus' first coming is all about. Winning victory over sin. That Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And indeed, Jesus brings us God's salvation from the penalty of sin. Friends, sin has a fearsome penalty. Back in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about a sin that to most of us seems insignificant. Calling someone a fool. Probably do that every time we drive on Highway 6. But Jesus says there's a dreadful penalty for that. He says it's the hell of fire. That's no joke. The eternal condemnation of God. Friends, Jesus has come to deliver us from that penalty. But more than that, Jesus also brings salvation from the power of sin. Jesus has come to set us free from our slavery. John 8, he says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Friends, serving sin is not freedom, it's slavery. Jesus wants to liberate us from the dominion of the desires of our flesh and the lies of the world. He comes to give us life as it should be lived. Set free to live and serve God. And one day, friends, he will save us even from the presence of sin as he will raise those who belong to him up from the dead and give us immortal resurrection bodies to dwell in the bliss of the new creation, 
unstained and corrupted by sin and its terrible effect. Friends, this is the victory Jesus came to accomplish in his first coming. And he won it, not as a politician, not as a general. He won it by dying on a cross. And Jesus explains his mission like this in Matthew 20, 28. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came the first time to render a service for you and for me. He came to give his life as a ransom payment, to buy us out of that bondage to sin. And the price was his life. Friends, we each and all have sinned against God. We each deserve the Father's wrath. Jesus took all that upon himself, and he died on the cross. And by so doing, he has paid the price that was required to set us free. Jesus died for our sins. But that's not the end of the story because three days later, he rose from death bodily. He got up and walked out of the tomb. And he appeared to many people, several of whom were unbelievers. And they saw him and they're like, whoa, Jesus is alive. And they had to become believers because they couldn't deny what they'd seen. Friends, Jesus has triumphed. He has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over death and the grave. And friends, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of his identity. The Apostle Paul would write in Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the resurrection, the Father once more declares that Jesus is his Son. So friends, this is why Jesus came to earth the first time. This is what his Messiahship is about. Not about liberating Israel from Rome, but liberating people from sin, from its penalty, its power, and ultimately its presence. But ultimately, the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection do not fall on everyone indiscriminately. No, Jesus said this in his first sermon in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the right response to the truth about Jesus. Friends, we will not be saved if in the end we think that God is impressed with us because of our great talent or intellect or education or our winning personality. We cannot be saved because we do some good work. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's grace. It is a free, unmerited gift that he gives, which is received by faith. And as Jesus has told us to repent and believe, we can say the, salvation, or the, the, the faith that, that brings us into salvation is a repentant faith. What's repentance? Well, simply put, it's a turning around. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 13. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Friend, hear me. We all start life on the same path. We all walk down this wide road, listening to the lies of the world, seeking self and the desires of the flesh. And we think, oh, I'm having a good time. And we don't realize we are being swept along a current that terminates in doom. But there is great news, which is there is another path that we can get on. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow, and those who find it are few. 
This alternative path may not look attractive to us at first because it's uncomfortable, it's constricting, it can prove painful. And yet that's the only road there is that leads to life. And when Jesus says repent, he's telling us we've got to make a U-turn. We've got to get off the broad road that leads to destruction and we've got to get on the narrow road. But what does this turn look like? We've got to turn to Jesus. That's what we mean when we talk about faith. We've got to believe the gospel. We've got to believe that Jesus is God and man, that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And we need to personally entrust ourselves and our eternal destiny to him. They say, what's that look like? Many times in this book, Jesus has said to somebody these words. He says, follow me. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Not just to believe some facts about who Jesus is and what he did, but to grasp the significance of those facts. Friends, if Jesus is God and man, if he has died and risen, he is Lord. And isn't that what David said back in Psalm 110? That he's Lord? David made the Christian profession a thousand years before Jesus was born. Friends, Jesus is Lord. And following him means we've got to recognize he has the right to rule over us, to tell us how to live, to urge us to war against personal sin, and to follow him no matter what we face. And that's a tough road. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you today. I tell you, if you follow Jesus, your life's going to be bright and sunshiny. And Jesus says, if you follow him, your life's going to be tough. He says, you're going to face persecution. John 15, 20, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Following Jesus means that our friends and our families will be disrupted. There will be disruption in our social circles. Jesus says in Matthew 10, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus demands that we put him above all else, everybody else in our lives. We saw last week the standard Jesus calls us to is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's tough. We won't achieve that standard perfectly in this life. But this is what Jesus calls us to. It is demanding. It is a pursuit that costs all. Indeed, Jesus says in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, that is what Jesus summons us to. And it is costly. But it is also infinitely rewarding. Because the truth is, in Jesus alone, despite the hardship, will you find rest and peace for your soul. The same Jesus who warns about all of that hardship says to us this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. Maybe today you hear this and you say, I don't know, man. This sounds so demanding. This sounds so costly. Why in the world would I want to pay this cost? Why in the world should I follow Jesus? And friend, if that's you today, I want to tell you. It is far more costly to refuse Jesus' invitation and to continue on the broad road that leads to destruction. Because Jesus says in Matthew 16, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Friends, Jesus came the first time as a humble servant, giving his life to liberate others. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And friends, if we reject Jesus' call to follow him, if we will not repent and believe, we will face the wrath of God forever. We will forfeit our soul to eternal judgment, Jesus says. So I want you to see whatever choice we make will cost us something drastic. We either die to self now and live with Christ forever, or we live for self now and we face eternal destruction later. What will you choose? What did the Pharisees choose? You know, they debated with Jesus that whole day. And they saw Jesus win again and again. You'd think a light bulb would have gone off eventually and they would have said, wow, maybe Jesus is on to something. Maybe we should listen to him. That's not what happened. Look at verse 46. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Having been defeated once more, the Pharisees don't wisen up and listen to Jesus. They just walk away. They're disengaged. The great debate's over. Jesus has won. And they say, well, we're not going to debate him anymore. Let's try something different. Let's murder him. And a few days later, they nailed him to a cross. Friend, today, you have heard the truth about Jesus. Today, you have heard the call of Christ. Repent and believe. What will your response be? Today, will you be like the Pharisees? Will you turn your back on Jesus and walk out that door unmoved? Will you walk, I don't need to change my life. I like my life. Nobody can tell me what to do. Or will you respond wisely? Will you bend your knee to this king? Will you turn from your sin to follow him? Today, if you already are following Jesus, I'm going to ask you this. Can you rejoice today? Because that one who was born in a manger so long ago is today seated at the right hand of the Father. He is wielding all of the power of God, carrying out all of the Father's He has set us free from the worst depression. He is coming again and he will set all things right. Friend, if you know Jesus today, rejoice because of these truths. If you don't know Jesus today, I implore you. I've set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. Today may we understand Jesus, may we consider his demands, and may we respond to him with the love and honor that he is due. Romans 11 says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever.